It is good to be back with you this week. Uh, there is no better, there's no place I'd rather be on Sundays than here with you guys. And so it was painful to, to not be with you last week, so it's good to be back. Um, and so let's just jump straight in. And so again, we're in a series called Path of Discipleship, and normally my mode uh, of operation is to, my favorite sermons are when I just plant in a passage and just uh, exposit its truth, but we're in a, a, uh, a series that we're just going to cover a lot of ground. So warm your fingers up. We're going to be turning to a lot of places, but the first place is Hebrews chapter 13. So you can go ahead and turn there. Um, that'll be the first verse that we read. But the Lord saved my soul when I was 20 years old. And when the Lord graciously, sovereignly saved me by his grace, uh, I was a lost, broken uh, young man. I, I had a, a conscience burdened, heavy with sin, and Jesus entered the picture and flooded my dark soul with light, cleansed my heart, filled me with his spirit and with new life and new passions. But I didn't know any better, I didn't have any other friends, and so I still tried to hang out with the old crew that were doing all the same old things. And all I knew to tell them was, Jesus is real, Jesus saved me, and you should come to Jesus. And they looked at me like I had 15 heads. They were very confused, they didn't know what to do with me. Um, I didn't know what to do with me, and I just, needed a lot of help in my discipleship. And so slowly, painfully, I had to separate from all of those relationships. I couldn't be in those same environments as a new believer and, and, and withstand temptation. So I had to leave all of my friends, which as a 20-year-old kid with now no friends uh, is painful. I loved my mom and dad. They're with the Lord now, but I you know, they were in bed by 8.30. I needed some community. And so I would just pray and ask, I mean, they're awesome, but you know, just needed some people to hang out with, you know, past 8.30. And uh, I prayed and asked God to send me Christian friends and, and he answered. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, early on in those relationships, I was so thankful to have relationships that were built upon Jesus, but there was not much difference between those friendships and the friendships I had before, just minus all of the rebellious things, but wasn't plus all the positive. And I remember, I remember sitting at my friend's house one night as we were watching a movie and I was bored. And I remember thinking to God, is this all there is? Is this all there is to the Christian life? And I was profoundly sad, but I was glad I was very wrong. Uh, I'll finish this story a little bit later, but I'll tell you that giving your life to the worship of God with God's people, giving your life to building up the body of Christ, giving your life to the mission that Jesus Christ has given to his church is exhilarating. There is so much to the Christian life that is yet to be experienced by us. And it's a beautiful thing, this local church. The local church is necessary and vital to your flourishing in your faith. And I love this church. And I don't mean the building, even though I love the building. The church is the people of God. The, you sitting in the rows today, you are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if you're in the faith, if you've given your life to Jesus, you are the church. We are the people of God, and I love you. I'm so thankful for you, and this series that we're in is called The Path of Discipleship, and I believe all of the Christian life can be filtered through what we've put together as the path of discipleship, and I want you to live and breathe and understand this path. It's essential for you to understand it, and there are five steps to our path of discipleship. We covered a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, Step one is convert to Christ. There is no following Christ if you haven't given your life to him. You must convert to Christ. And then the very next thing is commune with God. All of life is in relationship with God, to deepen in our relationship with God. And then there is step three, which we are on today. Commit to the local church or 
In this case, our church is called Redemption City Church. Commit to Redemption City Church, the vital importance of the local church in your discipleship, you're following Jesus. And in the next two weeks, we'll cover communicate the gospel and reproduce disciples. So today, commit to your local church. It is, I wanna say it like this, it is God's will for you to belong and to give yourself to the local church. Without this, your growth in Christ will stagnate. It will stagnate because Christianity is about us, not you. You understand? This, is, this flies in the face of this radical American individualism. But Christianity is about us, not me or you. Yes, knowing Christ is personal, but our faith is meant to be expressed communally. Do you understand that? Yes, Christ is our personal savior, but our faith is meant to be expressed in the family of God. Because Jesus, when, when we personally met Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we not only were introduced to God and have a relationship with God, he gives us his body, his family, the church. And it's essential that once we're converted to Christ and we deepen our relationship with God, we commit also to the local church. And, and I have two goals for this sermon, and they are in respective order. One, to deepen your appreciation and commitment to the local church, to reaffirm your belief and its importance, because this is the definition of preaching to the choir, right? You're like, you're here, okay? Well done, great job. Well done, guys. But I wanna deepen and reaffirm your belief in the church's importance in your walk with Christ. And if, you're, if you've come back to church today and it's been a long season, there's a reason why you're back. You know that you can't do this alone. You need the family of God. And two, to encourage those who are attending to give themselves and become missional partners of the Bride of Christ, Redemption City Church, or the, the local church. So let's pray for God's help as we start. God, thank you for this opportunity to bring your will, your word to this congregation. Lord, we know that your church is one. You have one body and you are the head. You are the leader. And so God, I pray though that as that one body is expressed in local communities of faith, God, we pray that you bless this one. We pray that you bless the churches in Rockford proper and around the surrounding areas. God, we need your local churches to thrive. We pray that you spill that thriving over into the streets of Rockford and may people come to know you in abundance. And I pray that if there's anyone in the attendance today that is far from you, separated from you in their sins, will you make them a part of your church today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, when you're immersed in something, you forget how special it is. You know, that's true. We were just in California, and California is a beautiful place to visit. Thank you, $7 a gallon for gas. That's a real number. But the beauty is unparalleled. You've got, we drove up the one, you've got the ocean on the left, you've got mountains on the right. Uh, my wife was taking so many pictures of flowers, things I would never think to do, but she was appreciating the beauty of the state of California. And, and as we were talking about it, I said, if we were here all the time, I bet you would get used to it. And she says, oh, I beg to differ. And uh, it reminded me of a, uh, a mission trip that we took in 2006 to the Philippines. And the Philippines is just as beautiful as California. Still the, the mountains and the ocean. The only difference is there's extreme wealth in California and there's extreme poverty in, uh, by and large in the Philippines. But I remember at the end of that trip, uh, the American missionaries and the Fili Filipino hosts and Christians that were our translators and partners in the gospel over those two weeks, we were sharing about what God had done in our lives. And uh, Vaughn, 
the translator that uh, became a very dear brother to me, very close friend, said to us, he goes, we have become used to these beautiful surroundings, but listening to you guys in awe over these last two weeks have reminded us of the beauty of God's creation that we get to live in day in and day out, and he thanked us for that. And I think that being in the church, we've gotten used to how unique, how beautiful, and how special living life in a local church can be. I mean, what a privilege it is to belong to the family of God, to have God as our Father, to have Christ as the head, to have these relationships, to have fellowship in the Holy Spirit. How unique and how special. And when we're in the water, we get used to it. But this is, this is not something to get used to. It's something to be in awe of and to thank God for throughout our Christian life. And the 30,000 foot view. So I have two overarching questions today. The first one is, what is the church? And the second one is, why is the church vital to your flourishing in your faith. So the first question, what is the church? Here's the 30,000 foot view. The definition of the church, uh, the literal Greek word is uh, ekklesia. And this means the called out assembly or the called out ones, the ones that God has called out to assemble and to gather in his name. And the church began at Pentecost when God the Father and God the Son sent the Holy Spirit into all who believed and the Spirit of God lit the flame of the church. And that flame has been lit for almost 2,000 years. And that flame has not diminished and will burn ever more brightly until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven to come and get us. Listen, the church is called out to be light in a dark world. The church is called out to be holy, hating what God hates and loving what God loves. God has called the church to be a kingdom of priests. And we've learned in our study of Exodus that priests do two things. We, they worship God and then they minister to others. They mediate God's grace to others. And then called as God's sons and daughters in this world, called out as God's dwelling on earth, the church is. The church is called out to go and make disciples. We are to be heralds that there is a kingdom and there's a good king. And there is a feast that they are invited to at the end of all things. We are a herald, the church is, to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. We are called out together. And I want to convince you to change your prayers. When, when Jesus taught his church to pray, you will not see any I, me, my. You'll see our. And I want to encourage you to pray prayers that include our, we, and us, not I, me, and my. Jesus is teaching us when the disciples learn, teach us how to pray even in his prayer, you pray for the family, not just yourself. Because it's about us, not me. And Greg Allison, a great theologian, defines the church this way. Buckle up. This is a big definition, and it's beautiful. So, the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Christ and incorporated into his body. Through baptism with the Spirit, it consists of two interrelated elements. One, the universal church, composed of all Christians, both in heaven and on earth. Local churches, which are oriented to, what are local churches supposed to be oriented to? God's glory. Word-centered, meaning on Christ, because he is the word, and the scripture. The church's spirit activated, covenantal, meaning we are in the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated, and in a local church covenant. Confessional, meaning personal confession of faith and corporate confession of faith. Missional, 
We are sent on a mission of God, on the mission of God, and assembled as pilgrims on the way to a future hope. That is the church. What a beautiful, unique, special thing we get to be a part of that Christ has called us to. The church is visible and invisible. What does that mean? And so uh, theologians make this distinction. The church is visible. Look around. There are people here. And the visible church are those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And, and we accept one another's confession of faith. We, we accept people's testimonies. We see them be baptized. We see them take communion. That's a testimony that uh, you are claiming faith in Jesus Christ. But the teachings of the scriptures say, by Jesus and the apostles, teach us that there are some who claim to be in the family and are not. But that's not visible to us. Sometimes it makes itself visible. But the church is visible and invisible, meaning that there is a true church. And 2 Timothy 19 says, the Lord knows who are his. And every single one of them are known by God in particular. And St. Augustine said this of the visible church, many sheep are without the church and many wolves are within. Now, I don't believe any wolves are in this room. I believe this, this uh, church is filled with sheep, but part of the shepherds of this church, myself and the elders, are to protect this flock from anyone that would try to destroy the church, to teach false doctrine, or to lead people away from sin. That's our job as shepherds. But St. Augustine, again, many sheep are without, many wolves within. The visible church is composed of all genuine Christians, both in heaven and on earth. How beautiful is that? And of those who will believe until the number is complete. But it's, that complete number is known by God. And... Uh, so the church is visible and invisible. The church is also universal and local. Again, what is the church? It is universal and it is local. What does that mean? There is Universal means there is one church. There is one family of God. There is one body of Christ. But there are many expressions of that one body in the world in local congregations. There is the universal church and the local church. And there is no verse that says, thou shalt join and become members of a local church. But the Bible assumes it. The Bible assumes it. So this is where we look at Hebrews 13. Look at Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 17. It assumes missional partnership, okay? Membership, what we call missional partnership here. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now listen, people get tripped up on these obey and submit to your leaders. Listen to me very carefully. You only obey your leaders as far as we stand on this word and the proper interpretation of this word. God has given us authority not to lord over you, but to serve you. That is the only reason we have authority by God. How did Jesus Christ use his authority in the church? To serve her, to serve her. Now listen to me, I tremble at this passage because did you hear what it says? And something that I don't need in particular is a stricter judgment. And James tells us that for those, you shouldn't, not too many should be considered teachers because they will endure a stricter judgment. And here in Hebrews 13, 17 says, they, the church leaders, are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. To whom? Almighty God. I, I will stand in front of Almighty God and give an account for how I and how the elders will stand in front of God and give an account to him for how we lead this church. But you also have a role in this too. Let them, your church leaders, do this with joy and not groaning. 
Certainly in shepherding, there is groaning because we care. There's anguish over the people here because we belong to one another. Do you see how the Bible assumes that we belong to one another? And so it's essential that we belong to a local expression of the universal church. And it is my joy to be the pastor of this body of Christ. Important biblical ways to think about the church include, and I was helped along by a guy named John Crotz in this and his book on the church. Listen to this. What is the church? We're still in that. The church is designed for the glory of God. Why does the church exist? What is it? The church is designed for the glory of God. Listen to this. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Church, what should we say? The church, listen to me, John, I'm quoting John now. He says, the church was designed by God as a prism, drawing in his radiance and reflecting the rainbow of his perfections among his people and outward to the world. We are designed by God to radiate his excellence. That's why the church exists, for the glory of God. What is the church? Well, who's its builder? Jesus is building the church. You say, well, no, we're building the church. Jesus is building his church. Listen to Matthew 16, 16 through 18. The context is Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter says this, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Catholic Church gets this wrong where they think that Jesus means they're going to build the church on Peter and his descendants. No, it's the confession that that Peter makes. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation for the local church. And who builds it? I will build my church. Listen, the church is Jesus' deal. It's his passion. It will not fail. But wait a minute. Don't churches fail all the time? Not the church. Local expressions of the universal church may fail at times, but the Local, the universal church will never fail, and the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail because Jesus is the builder. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? This, this unique, beautiful thing that we get used to is amazing that we get to be a part of. What is the church? It is the bride of Christ. You know that? the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, husbands, sit up taller and listen carefully. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus' bride is blood-bought. How did Jesus love the church? With his life blood. God sent him from heaven, and how did Jesus use his authority? To serve her unto death, to purchase her pardon, to take his bride from death into life. Do you think the church matters to Jesus? Do you think the church ought to matter more to us if it's his bride? How, does, how much does Jesus love his wife, his bride? Listen to me, John Piper gives the best illustration here when, when he said, if, if you come over to my house and, and you want to hang out with me and, and, and I answer the door and you say, is your wife home? Because if she's home, I don't want to hang out with you. I just want to hang out with you, not your wife. Do you think you would be allowed in John's home? I'll, I'll personalize it. If you come over to my house and you say, Matt, I really like you, but I don't want to hang out with Aaron, guess what you're not going to do today? 
You're not going to hang out with me. Why? Because we are united in a covenant that will not be broken. Jesus and the church are united in covenant. They go hand in hand. How essential is the, the church for you? Well, it's the bride of Jesus purchased by his own blood. That's what the church is. We need to understand what is the church. And Acts 20, 28 puts an exclamation point on it when it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The church is the bride of Christ purchased by the death of Christ. Jesus is the foundation. What is the church? He is the foundation for the church. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says, so then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built up into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Jesus is the foundation. The metaphors abound. The church is the body of Christ, and he is the head. So think about a human. The church is his body. Christ is the head, the leader. But listen to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 that says this. He puts, God the Father, puts all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Listen, the father exalted his son as the head over all created things and gave him as the cosmic head to the church, his body. The significance is that the church submits to the head, Jesus himself. Submitting to Christ in part looks like giving yourself to his bride, to the church. Notice the interconnectedness that we should see in this. If we're the body, there are not, again, separate bodies that express this reality that there is one family of God. And listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14, which says, For just as the body is one and has many members, so just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into the body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And all of those members are gifted with gifts from the Holy Spirit that build up the body of Christ when working together into unity, into that one body. They abound. The church is the temple of God. After Jesus ascended triumphantly into heaven and he and the Father sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his people on the earth, the church. The church is called the temple of God on earth. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The body of Christ is the household of God. 1 Timothy 3.15, I've already read that. And then the, the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth, the Bible says. And the buttress is the support of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15-16 says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Listen, God gave the role of the church for preserving and protecting his truth. How important is the church? He gave the church to preserve and to protect his truth. With all the assaults against the truth of God, what hope is there that truth and error can still be sorted out? God has established, established churches to study, to know, to do, to proclaim his word to the world. How important is the church to God? God designed the church to spread his glory to the nations. 
This is the last one. I'll move to the second one, okay? God designed the church to spread his glory to all nations. Listen to Habakkuk 2, 14. And I want you, church, to get a passion for this. I, I pray that as you've heard these truths, maybe your whole life, may God wash it upon you afresh and may he ignite in you the passion that lights his own heart for passion and what matters to him. Listen to what he's doing. And I want to be a part of it. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled, future tense, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then hear Jesus give a great commission that he sends, not individual Christians, that he gives to the 11 apostles who they give it to the churches to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that the Lord Jesus Christ taught us to do. I want you to see that connected as spreading the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the mission. That's the mission we are on. And I want you to be a part of it and to get excited about what God says we should be excited about. So reflection number two, quickly. Why is the church essential to your flourishing? Well, I want to define flourishing. Flourishing means progressive sanctification. What does that mean? It means that we are progressively being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. When, when God saved you, if you're in Christ, when God saved you, he took you from death to life, and then he fills you with this Holy Spirit, and he sends you on this lifelong journey of becoming like his son, Jesus Christ. The church is essential essential to that process. Listen, the people of God, and not only is it essential, the people of God are precious and irreplaceable to our lives. And if you've given your life to the church and, you've, and your, your life-giving relationships are here, you know that's true. Here's what David pins under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 16, 3 says, As for the saints in the land... They are the excellent ones, and whom is all my delight. If you've given yourself to the church, there's no doubt you have experienced some of the delight that comes with sweet friendship in the church. But it's, it's for that, but also for discipleship. So I want, I want you to zoom back to that young 20-year-old me. I about said my name in the third person. I don't like doing that. Uh, my initials are MJ, but only Michael Jordan can do that, right? It's just, it's, it always even drove me nuts when he said Michael Jordan this, Michael Jordan that. So uh, zoom back to that story of me when I was thinking, is this all there is? And it was, it was a question, but it was a cry from my spirit to God. Enter a man named Lance Hahn. I was leading the college group at my church. And just this, uh, this. If, if, does anyone have any Louisiana friends? Okay, yeah, yeah, I know you do. You guys are from there. You meet some Louisiana friends, and they're going to be quickly some of your favorite people. Okay, <laughs> robust. If 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 you have a stereotypical understanding of what a, a New Orleans person is like, that's Lance Haunt. Okay, but he loves. But set that passion on fire for Jesus. Okay, and so this man entered my local church and he showed up to one of my groups and I didn't know who he was, but he had been hired as the college pastor and he started to mentor me. And that was the first time in my life where I saw a man on fire for God. A man who gave himself fully to the worship of God in the church, who gave himself fully to the building up of the precious brothers and sisters in the faith, and who was on fire for the mission of God in the world. And I knew this was the answer to my longing of my heart. And I grabbed onto his coattails and just rode. The only reason I'm standing here today is because of God sending Lance Hahn to my life. But that was in the church it's essential to see one another and to be spurred on and, and encouraged and admonished and helped in times of need. Listen, let me, let me say this. 
about the teachings of the scriptures. Listen to the goal and instruction, which is found in 1 Timothy 1, 5 and 6. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Listen, that love, so that's the goal. The aim of the teaching of scriptures is love, Paul says to Timothy, that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. Faith, that love gets expressed in the church. Where else can we express that love if not in the church? That love gets expressed towards brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the aim of the teaching. And if you've read 1 John 5.1, it says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. If you love the Father, you love his kids. If you love the Father, you love his kids and they are essential to our growing in Christ. Hebrews 10.25 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day, as you see the day drawing near. We can't forsake meeting together because we need, we need each other to be spurred on to continue on and on. Listen, if you're in Christ, this is David Powelson. I learned this from David Powelson, and I think it's so beautiful. If you're in Christ, you are in some intrinsic way wedded to the welfare of others. Listen to this. God intends to get glory from his complete number of people being perfected in the end. Imagine the future glorification that we will go to when we all arrive together on New Eden shores perfected when we meet Jesus. But listen to me. Therefore, since that is the day coming and it's not arrived yet, therefore, there is a real sense where I'm not perfected until you're perfected. You're not perfected until I'm perfected. We have a stake in each other's growing in Christ. How beautiful is that? The interconnectedness of the church is that your sin habits are personal to me because I care about your perfection and in my sin habits that need to be perfected ought to be a matter of concern for you because we're one body under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how interconnected we are and how vital we are to each other in this sanctification process. It's not you off with Jesus by yourself. It's with the church. Where else will I express the fruits of growth but, but with my brothers and sisters? Where else can I express the gifts that God has given to me? And where else can you express the gifts God has given to you if not in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture says we're, good, we're called to do good to all, but especially to the household of faith, Galatians 6, 10. Listen, where else will we receive all of the one anothering that the Bible says we ought to give each other? Where else will we hear the word preached, but in the context of corporate worship? Where else will we be reminded through the Lord's Supper and baptism that we have a good father who personally saves us and puts us together as one? Where else do we get the incalculable thing that happens in public worship where we can sing songs to God? And we, we, we can surely sing by ourselves, but you don't want to hear me do that. There will be no special music from your pastor on Sunday mornings, and you ought to thank God for that. <laughs> it's a joyful noise to Jesus somehow. But when we sing together, isn't it amazing? You hear the voices. Let's get rid of the carpet so we can hear it louder again. We're going to keep the carpet. I just, that was a joke. I got some people that if I say, if I say let's do it, they'll rip it out. Because <laughs> I walked in here, I was like, I want that wall gone, I want this, and it was done like two days later. So you got to be careful. Don't rip the carpet out. Tim Miles, if you're in here, please don't rip the carpet out. <laughs> Thank you. But there is nothing like singing with a group of other believers who mean it. 
we are singing to each other and to the Lord. And how awesome are the things we're saying to God and to each other. How important is this? It's vital to our sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Listen to me. That's all of us at different times. And this happens in the local church. Listen, have you ever been idle? Have you ever been standing still in your faith? Well, we need one another to admonish, to instruct, to warn, to strongly advise, to not continue the path that we are walking. And if you're not in the church, and if you're not known, how can you be admonished? Encouraged. That is to speak courage and comfort to one another. Have you ever been faint-hearted? If you're not in the church and you're not known, who will encourage you? Who will speak courage into you to keep walking? How, how many of us have needed help because we're weak? Literally, this word, this word, word weak in the Greek means to cling to belief. There are people in the church that are just crying out for help and they need, they're trying to cling to their faith. Brother and sister, if you're, if you're out of the church, who's going to know you and know that you need help? We need each other to help cling to the faith when we're weak. And one week you might come to me and you need these things and then the next week I need you. Just because I stand on this stage doesn't mean I'm not a brother in need of your encouragement and needing your help, needing your admonishment. We are in this thing together and we are vital to one another. And I, and, um, I was surprised about how few of us joined a life group. About half of us joined a life group. And I want to encourage you over the next year, if you've chosen not to, to, to ask yourself why. If this is true, why would you stay away from these things? Give yourself to the community of the church. Listen, the church has been vital to my walk with Christ. It's been irreplaceable. We can commit to a lot of things in this world, but we need to choose wisely. Uh, and, and here's this, I, I think about this all the time. I think about this all the time. I think about when I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account, and I also think about when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account. And I am jealous for you standing before the Lord having given your life to his bride. I've tried to, I've tried to make an argument of how special that the Bible says the church is to Jesus. And I'm trying to say to you, it ought to be more special to us and to give our lives to it. So watch, pour out your life into the bride of Christ and you fill and, and watch him fill yours with joy and blessing. Yes, it's a labor, but it's a labor of love. And it, when you labor in the Lord, it, you, will, you do not labor in vain. Sowing and reaping. Uh, I want you to look at the picture here. We are a complete family. We will always have exactly who God has chosen to be with us. But in another sense, we are incomplete because there are others in this city who do not know him yet. And I hope that that fills you with excitement to get on mission with God to say our number is not complete. There are others, God has others in this city who are not yet his. Would you attempt to live for him, but not in the household of faith? I hope that you're convinced to, to join the local church. And this year, to become a family, healthy and devoted to one another. You belong here. And we have a lot of work. We're a church plant. And I hope that we unite together. And that looks like I hope that you meet someone new before you leave here today. I hope over the next year you make it a goal to meet somebody new every single week. 
Get to know the people in this church. And that's going to take being intentional. I want you to use your gifts to build somebody else up in the faith every week. And then meet the needs of the church with your service. Listen, the Lord knows who is it, who are his as I wind this sermon down. Turn to Numbers chapter 16. So when the Lord says, when uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, saying the Lord knows who are his, it's quoting Numbers 16. And this is an important story for you to see. Uh, the context of Numbers 16 is that uh, if you know anything about the Israelites, they were, they were disciplined by God that they would not enter his rest and they would not enter the promised land until the generation died and their kids would then enter the promised land because of their repeated stiff neck, their repeated hardness of heart. They would not obey God. They would rebel against God and rebel against God. And so God had just given the verdict, you will not enter the promised land. And so you've got a bunch of people who are just going to wander in the wilderness until they die. And in number 16, these people start to get rebellious, even more so. And in chapter 16, you're going to see 16 verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izar, son of Koath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and I listened to you version of how to announce this name, but I forget already. Abram, <laughs> the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, son of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel. 250 chiefs of the congregation chose from the assembly well-known men, and they assembled together against Moses and against Aaron, and there was a standoff. And they were saying, who are you, Moses and Aaron? to put yourself above us. And then there's a showdown. Who are the people of God? And they all assembled in the very next day and God would decide who are his. And verse 31, it says, and as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground underneath them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their gods. And so God knows who are his, and these people were in rebellion, and they experienced the wrath of God, and the ground opened and swallowed them up. And the very next day, the people did not like it, and they rebelled. Isn't that crazy? If I saw the ground open up and like swallow other human beings, I, would, I hope I would fall in line. But that's not what happened. And so these people rebelled. And then in verse 49, God sent the plague. And in verse 49, now those who died in the plague were 14,700. Listen, God knows who are his. There are people that say they're a part of his people, but it's shown by the genuine worship of the Lord, the commitment to his people and to service to the world. And there are people in our communities that just are in rebellion against the Lord. And listen to me, if we're in the church, all of us have rebelled against the Lord. All of us are deserving of the wrath of God. And yet, many of us have experienced the grace of God and I want those who are here outside of his grace. Listen, God has been gracious and kind to you. He has delayed his wrath against your sin and given you another chance today to repent of your sins and to turn to faith, in faith to Jesus Christ, his son. Listen, salvation for you is possible because, in a sense, Christ was swallowed by the earth in his death and burial. And yet he rose again from the grave, offering eternal life to all those who would believe. And salvation for you is possible because Jesus took the worst, worst possible plague, which is our sins. And they were absorbed in his body and he was nailed to a tree. And the father exhausted his wrath on his own son in our place so that there can be a place in his family for us. We have all turned our backs on God and have turned our face towards sin. Let's reverse that today. Let's lay down our sins and turn our face towards God and be forgiven, cleansed, and healed. 
God will finish the work of preparing the bride for her husband. There she is. Look at her. Do you know who she once was? It's going to be amazing, the transformation. The Lord knows us. Listen, I must say this as we close. Titus 2.14, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen, zeal was the word used of Jesus when it said zeal for God's house consumed him. Well, until the return of Jesus, may zeal for his house consume Redemption City. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And and Jesus, it's so much, like there's so much I didn't say about your bride. And Lord, it's just inexhaustible, your word, and how precious to us are your words. And God, I just ask you in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that you know, you know who are yours. And God, I, you have delayed wrath on us all. And I pray that if there is someone who has rebelled against you, not believed in you, and they are speeding to a place where they were experience your, your wrath, I pray that they, by the power of your spirit, be convicted of their sins and run from their sin to you, Jesus. Risen and reigning, ready to show mercy and kindness and forgiveness. So God, I pray that you get all the glory in your church this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the Lord's Supper is gonna be passed out. You guys can start. This is a meal uh, only for believers in Jesus Christ. So I ask if, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, but you refrain from, from taking this. And, and, and if that's you, I pray that you evaluate your soul and, and do what I encouraged you to do a moment ago. The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so uh, why would you uh, not give yourself to it? Thank you, Jared. Um, why would you not give yourself to it? But the way that we uh, go about taking the Lord's Supper is important. Mm. You see that you're not moving. It's coming to you. And that is a picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospels where it talks about Jesus leaving the 99 and coming after you. As much as, as it's about us, it is about you too. And he knows you and he sees you. And if you're in Christ, he came after you. And I want you to see that as it's coming to you. It's the Lord, his body, his blood coming to you. But we're also, I I ask that you hold on to it because we're gonna take it together as a family after the song that we sing to prepare our hearts because we are united. And isn't that great? Isn't it great that we are united to Jesus Christ but also to each other and that is good in the sight of God. And I... I hope that you see the significance in this. And so as we sing, may you just prepare your heart